Radio. We are continuing our series in the letter to the Romans. Uh, so today we're up to chapter 12, verses uh, 9 to 21. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honour. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honourable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of God. When I was in uh, primary school, uh, I went on a field trip to the gold mine in Bendigo. And it was quite an experience because when you go to this particular gold mine, the first step is you get on this massive lift and go down a mine shaft, which kind of feels like it goes forever. When you finally get to the bottom, the lift opens and you walk through what feels like kilometres of these huge tunnels uh, that are cut in sheer rock. But the highlight of the trip was when we finally got to see a big lump of genuine gold. And I say genuine because we were also shown another big rock, which was called fool's gold. And it looked exactly like gold, um, but fool's gold, it's actually, it's completely different to real gold. It's made up of um, iron and uh, sulphur, so it's a completely different substance. Um, however, when iron and sulphur, sometimes it can look uh, like a brassy yellow colour, and so when you first see it, it looks exactly like real gold. And so you can think of all those poor um, prospectors uh, many years ago thinking they'd struck it rich uh, only to have something that crumbled in their hand. Now, I start with this because this passage is also about something incredibly valuable like gold, um, and it's also something that can easily be confused with a counterfeit version. So what am I talking about? I'm talking about love. Okay, the incredible value of love. Love within a community. See, this passage is all about Christian love. But the headline of the passage, did you notice what the headline is, the very first statement? It's, let love be genuine. And I think we can understand why Paul starts there, because it is so easy to settle for a counterfeit version of love. Uh, it's very easy to be polite and to be nice on the surface, while behind the uh, veneer of niceness is a heart that doesn't really care about other people. Uh, even as a church community, it can be very easy to have a, a culture of niceness that is really just a covering for a whole lot of backbiting and gossip and uh, prejudice. But see, this counterfeit love is completely at odds with the gospel. You see, if we've experienced the love of Christ in the gospel, 
then as a result, our love must be genuine. It can't be the counterfeit version. It must be genuine love. So what does genuine love look like then? Well, that's what this passage is all about. Now, just by way of introduction, I, there's just two things that we, it's good to look at, you know, stand back and look at the thing as a whole. So you'll notice after it says, let love be genuine, there's a statement about evil and good. And then right at the end of the passage, there's another statement about evil and good. And that's telling us that however we understand love, it must always be consistent with what God says is good and avoiding what God says is evil. And that's particularly important today in our society because, uh, just one example, um, you know, it's never loving to condone something that God says is wrong. Sometimes things can be done in the name of love when it's condoning something that God says is actually evil. So that's not loving. Uh, it's never loving to uh, stay silent when someone is doing something that is sinful and foolish, you know, someone you care about, just to stay silent. That's not loving. Uh, it's never loving to stay silent in the face of evil. See, genuine love for others is always in line with God's truth and always operates within God's moral order. So that's just stepping back, looking at the whole. The other thing that we look at, what well, we see when we look at the whole, is there's no clear distinction in this passage between loving uh, fellow believers inside the church and loving people outside the church. There's actually no clear distinction here between loving friends and loving enemies because the passage begins with talking about you know, loving each other, loving fellow Christians. The end of the passage talks about loving enemies, but where, where is the transition? Where does Paul stop talking about one group and start talking about the other? It's actually not that clear. Uh, there's a whole lot of debate about you know, how you break up the passage. But I think Paul has done that intentionally because if we have genuine love for one another, what will happen? It will then overflow into how we treat people outside the believing community. So, let's, so with that in mind, let's look at the, this passage uh, under three headings. Let's ask, what does genuine love look like? Let's look at it as, what does it look like to love each other? then what does it look like to love those outside the community? And then finally, how do we get the ability um, to do it? So we'll look inward, then outward, and then we're going to look upward. Okay, first let's look inward. What does genuine love look like in here, amongst each other? Well, look at verse 10. It says, love one another with brotherly affection. Now, in the original, that's only three words. Well, love one another is one word which is a word for love within a family. And brotherly love, that's also another love word to do with family, brothers and sisters. And so you can see that what Paul is saying here is that our love within the Christian community should be that of love within a family. Now, for some people, that's not a very helpful metaphor because family isn't a loving place. Sometimes, some families, sadly, are you know, more like um, war zones. But Paul is talking about a healthy family love. Uh, in, in a healthy family, you know, the people that you're related to, the people that you grow up with, the people that you share so many joys and sorrows with in life, in a healthy family, there is this deep bond that's so deep that it produces this commitment to each other that, that almost trumps everything else. And see, what verse 10 is saying is that that's the kind of relationship that we have with other believers, as if we are an actual family. And do you know what? We are. Because in Romans chapter 8, it says that those Christ saves 
are also adopted into God's family. We now have God as our Father, which means that when we look around the room, what are we looking at? Brothers and sisters in Christ. And so what inevitably happens in a church is that you find yourself surrounded by people from all walks of life. And, and for a lot of the people in here, here you are, closely related, loving, you know, enjoying each other's company, people who, if it wasn't for the church, if it wasn't for Jesus, you'd probably never have anything to do with. But now, through the gospel, you've all got the same father, you've got the same older brother, Jesus. You've got the same spirit of adoption. And so now, as a family, there's this natural affection that, that just grows for each other. People who, if it wasn't for the gospel, probably have nothing to do with each other. But in the gospel, see all these dividing walls come down. You know, the, the cultural barriers, the racial barriers, the uh, age barriers, the income level barriers, the political viewpoint barriers, all these barriers, they're all broken down by the gospel. And we find that there's this affection for one another. You know, all, all these things that keep us segregated in every other aspect of life, it's all broken down and we're all one in Christ. And so there's this affection that produces a bond, a commitment, that for a lot of people in the church, it actually feels like the family you never had. And so we're to love each other with, with the kind of affection that you find in a healthy blood-related family. So, for example, in a healthy family, you know, let's say your sister or, or perhaps um, a daughter calls you up on the phone and says, I've got nowhere to live, I'm going to be out on the street tonight. Now, what do you do? You don't say... Oh, well, not my problem. Um, you might do that in a broken family, but in a healthy family, what do you do? You just drop everything on the spot, you get in the car, you drive to where she is, you pick her up, you bring her back, you make a room in your house, and for the next week or, or months, however long it takes, you do whatever you can to get her back up on her feet. So you don't care what it costs. You don't care how inconvenient it is. right? You do it because she's family. Okay? There's a commitment there. And I suspect that many of you here would do that even for a cousin or a nephew or a niece. You don't care how inconvenient it is. Why? Because they're family. And that's what family do. You look out for each other. You care for each other. You love them. You would do anything for them because they are family. And see, that's the kind of love that verse 10 is calling all of us to as a church for each other. Because the church is a family. And this, this family love... That's what then shapes the rest of the commands in uh, the verses that follow. And where that ends, that's um, where we'll have to work that out. <laughs> but uh, in the verses that follow, Paul, he unpacks what family love looks like. And there's three things that he highlights in these verses. <clears throat> the first one we see here is that we're to be a family who are indiscriminately invested in one another. Indiscriminately. What does that mean? Well, look at verse 10. Verse 10 says, outdo one another in showing honour. And to honour means to treat someone as valuable. To honour someone means to treat them as if they matter to you. And see, there might be people uh, in the church, in this church even, that you might have um, never ever spoken to or never really considered. Um, maybe, maybe you've overlooked them or ignored them because you've thought, they're not worth my time. They're not worth the emotional effort that it takes to get to know someone new. But see, what does it say? We're to outdo one another in showing honour. See, no, no one is 
worthless. No one is someone you can just chuck aside. No, no, to honour is to treat as valuable, as if they matter. And when it says outdo one another, it's almost like we've been encouraged into a little bit of a competition, a healthy competition of outdoing each other in showing honour. And that, of course, also means um, how we um, talk about each other. You know, no, no one's a piece of rubbish, so never should the way we talk about someone um, be like that, okay? To outdo one another in showing honour. So that's what it means. We're a family who are indiscriminately invested in each other. Second, we're also a family who are emotionally invested in each other. And that's what verses 11 and 12 are about. See, look at verse 11 and 12. It says, Do not be slothful in zeal, <clears throat> which is to do with emotion. Uh, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Now, if these verses were anywhere else in the Bible, we would um, see them as just talking about personally enduring uh, trials. Right? But because they're in the context of how to love one another within a church body, they must be talking about an involvement and a concern for one another that is so deep that what happens to others deeply affects us. It impacts us. And so if someone in the church is, is, is rejoicing, what are we doing? We're all rejoicing. If someone in the church is hurting, we're hurting. Okay, Because we're invested in each other, emotionally invested, which means that being patient in tribulation and being constant in prayer must be talking about how we deal with not, not just our own troubles, but with each other's troubles, okay? That we're patient in one another's tribulations, that we're constant in prayer for one another as they go through tribulations. So no one is to suffer alone in God's family, and it comes out even more um, down in verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. See, we're to be emotionally invested in each other. And third, we're to be a family who are financially invested in each other. Uh, that's what verse 13 is about. So you contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Do you know, this is actually what marked out the early church. If you read through the book of Acts, you know, day of Pentecost, thousands of people converted... They all form the church, and what does it say in Acts 4? There was not a, not a needy person among them, because people were just generous. You know, some people had um, a block of land that they weren't using, sold it, hey, who needs help? Here you go. Just open-handed. It was incredible, but what was that? That was a church who took seriously the call of genuine love. And it was surprising, because it was a church of well over 3,000 people, Okay, that's a big family with a lot of needs and yet not a needy person among them. Why? Because they just practiced love. Well, what about this word hospitality? When you hear that word, what comes to mind? Hospitality. Probably um, having your friends over for Sunday lunch. But hospitality, do you know what the word itself actually means? It literally means love for the stranger. Love for the stranger. So... To practice hospitality, according to the Bible, is actually to welcome someone from outside, someone from not around here, someone from outside the community. Welcome them into your life. Welcome them into your home. And so it's talking about <clears throat> what we do with uh, visitors and newcomers, uh, where to welcome them uh, in. And that's not a take-it-or-leave-it duty. 
I think we can get this idea that hospitality is something only for, for certain people. You know, the people who are good at putting on a good spread. Um, not, not the sausage and bread sort of people. <laughs> but it actually says here, seek to show hospitality. And you know, it's really confusing when you um, read it in the original language because that word seek to show is the same word that's translated persecute in verse 14. And when I first saw that, I was really confused because how can you persecute hospitality? That makes no sense until you realise that persecute means to go after someone. Okay, so, so to seek to show hospitality must mean go after people, not, not to attack them, um, but to invite them in, you know, to invite them as part of the community, um, invite them to your home, invite them to a meal. See, go after them. You know, it's not passive, we're actually got to get up and do it. Plan ahead. So there you go. Even in a section that seems to be so inward focused on loving as family, it's still outward focused. We're still thinking, how can we invite more in? So that's just a snapshot of what genuine love looks like among fellow Christians. Okay, it's the kind of love that you find in a healthy family because we are a family in Christ. And in this family, we are to, to uh, invest in each other indiscriminately, emotionally, financially. And to love like that, that's actually what it means to serve the Lord. Did you notice that? I think that's why people get confused about what this passage is on about because verse 11 has serve the Lord. But this is what it looks like to serve the Lord, to serve one another. That's the point that Jesus made in the parable of the sheep and the goats when he said, uh, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, you did it to me. Okay, how do you serve the Lord? By serving one another. So the big question at this point is, how are we going as a church? How are we going practicing this? How are you going as individuals in showing genuine love? Okay, let love be genuine. Well, the second thing we see in this passage is not only are we to love each other, the passage doesn't just look inward, it looks outward. We're to love those outside the believing community. In fact, we're to love those who attack the believing community. We're to love persecutors. Uh, this shows us that genuine love is not selective. Genuine love loves everyone, even enemies. And in many ways, that is actually what is so unique about Christianity. See, if we just took the first point, that we should love each other, in some ways that's not that surprising, because that's what most communities do. Most communities are committed to each other. You know, if you go into any sporting club or any kind of club, you will find that there is this attitude of, we treat each other like family. You know, you're one of the family. So even if you get like a, you know, a membership in Collingwood Football Club, it's like, welcome to the family, and you know, that really warms your heart. Uh, there's this, you know, every club, every community, there's a sense in which it's family, and so of course you love each other in, in the community. But see, what makes Christianity unique is that it's not just love inward, but it's love outward, and not just to the people who are kind, but even to the ones who hate and hurt us. That's what this is saying. See, this is what's unique, because verse 14, uh, this is one verse, it states it, but then it's unpacked further down in verse 17 to 21. But verse 14 says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Now, when someone purposely does something to hurt you, what is the natural reaction? The natural reaction is to hurt them back. Now, that's what comes naturally, but see, as believers, we're united to the one 
who prayed for the forgiveness of those who hung him on the cross. Which is just incredible to think about. Because never has anyone been treated so unfairly as Jesus. Okay, the one who never did a single thing wrong and yet had people absolutely hate him, uh, condemn him as a criminal and then torture him to death in the most inhumane way possible. And yet, right throughout all of that, never once did Jesus retaliate. Never once did he strike back. Never once did he speak out an angry word. Never once did he wish ill of those who were doing that to him. And if we belong to him, we're called to this same radical, supernatural lifestyle of genuine love, toward, even toward those who mistreat us. And there's two aspects to this. There's something that we um, should not do and then something that we should do. So what is it that we should not do when someone mistreats us for our faith? Well, we're, we're not to take revenge. We're not to retaliate by seeking um, revenge. And that's in verses 17 to 19. See, look at that. It says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honourable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So here we see the key to avoiding vengeance is to realise that it's actually not our role to do that. It's not our role to right every wrong. That's God's role, and for good reason too, because he's the only one who has the knowledge, the wisdom and the power to do it justly. If it's up to us to right wrongs, we always overreach, or we always overstep. It always adds to the violence and to the hate. But only God can do it perfectly, justice perfectly, and he will do it. He set a day. Okay, if God has a calendar, there is a day marked on his calendar with a big red circle saying, Judgment Day. And on that day, he will right every wrong, every single wrong. And so we can confidently leave all injustice to him to sort it out. Now, that doesn't mean we can never... Speak out against injustice. It doesn't mean we, we do nothing when there is an injustice committed. There is ways of dealing with that that God has actually given to us, uh, such as in the very next passage in Romans, which is all about the government and the government's role in administering um, justice in the world. And so that there is avenues to deal with certain things. But in this world that is fallen, perfect justice will never be done in this life. There are times when it's not possible to get justice. It's times when, when systems even work against you to get justice. And maybe we're heading into a day when that will be more true for Christians, that getting justice as Christians is something that we can't get. Maybe the government one day will be the very cause of mistreatment like it was in the day that Paul wrote this letter to the Romans. And so what do you do then? Do you become a vigilante? Do you go and burn the place down? Is that what you do? No. No, we leave it to God. He will right every wrong. We can trust Him. And so we leave it in God's hands. Now, if that's all that this passage said, that would be challenging enough. But it goes so much further. <laughs> because not only are we to, uh, to resist the, this, this natural desire to, to seek vengeance, but we're also to go the extra mile of actually doing good to those who mistreat us. And that's in verses 20 to 21 where it says, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, laugh at him. No, <laughs> feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. 
For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. See, here we can see why loving our enemies is God's will for us, because it's the only way to defeat evil. Any other way only adds to the evil. See, by loving our enemies, we defeat evil in ourselves, because we're resisting the temptation to retaliate and to strike back or to speak back in anger. But the other way it resists evil or stops evil is that when we respond in kindness, okay, when we respond not by retaliating but by actually doing something kind for our enemies, that can actually stop evil winning in our enemies. And that's most likely what this reference to the burning coals is. Okay, heaping burning coals on, on a head, initially it sounds like you know, being vindictive, you know, ha-ha, take that burning coal. But that's not what it's about. Burning coals is a metaphor for shame. The sense of shame that can come on someone when they realise that the way that they have acted is completely evil because the way the person is responding is completely unexpected. Everyone expects that when there's evil done that they're going to retaliate. But what happens when someone supernaturally resists that and the response in kindness, the shame can come over them. And it may even lead to repentance. And ultimately, that should be our deepest desire uh, for those who mistreat us, that they too would come to repentance, that they too would find the same forgiveness in Christ that we have found. You know, we can look to forward to Judgment Day, and we're not afraid, because we know Christ has already taken our judgment. You know, our desire should be that everyone finds that same forgiveness so that they can, too can have the confidence of being able to stand on that day. Now, that's what genuine love looks like. Now, obviously, there's a whole heap more we could say about uh, all of this um, passage, but, but this is what it looks like. It looks like the commitment of a healthy family on the inside. It looks like kindness and respect to those on the outside. Genuine love means loving not just those who are easy to love, but even those who are the hardest to love. Now, obviously, this is an extremely challenging passage, which means we have to ask the question, where do we get the ability to do it? Where do we get the ability to practice it? Actually, we probably need to ask a deeper question than that because it's possible for some of us to be thinking, this is one of those passages that you take and you file into the too hard basket because it sounds too costly. It sounds too hard. Uh, maybe there's a cost that we're not willing to bear. And so we really need to ask the question, how do we get the desire to practice this? How do we get the desire to, to actually show genuine love? And the answer, of course, is the gospel. Because Romans is all about the gospel. The gospel of God is the theme. And remember, for the first 11 chapters, Paul gives gospel explanation. And then for the last five chapters, gospel application. And right in between these two sections is that verse, the key verse, which says, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices to God. So what that's saying is that whatever we're called to do in the Christian life, we get the desire and the ability to do it by thinking more deeply about the mercy of God that he has extended to us in the gospel of Jesus. And so if we think about that in light of this passage, let's do that. Why should we treat each other like family? Why? Because Christ shed his own blood to reconcile us to the Father and therefore to reconcile us to each other. Why should we honour others above ourselves? Because Christ considered us more valuable than his own life 
in going to the cross for us? Why should we share our money and our homes with others? Because Christ gave up his home, entered into our poverty, in order to give us the riches of eternal life and a home that dwells forever. Why should we welcome strangers into our church and into our lives? Because on the cross, Jesus was estranged from God so that we who were the stranger can be welcomed in and to be seated around God's table forever. Why should we treat enemies kindly when they mistreat us? Because while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. Okay? He showed us the ultimate kindness by dying in our place to pay for all of the times we have mistreated God and all of the times we have been selfish and mistreated one another. He went and took the penalty for that. That's love. Okay? If you want to know love, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his only son to be a propitiation for our sins. And it's only in view of God's love that he's shown us in the gospel that we can even begin to do any of this stuff. Right? Because to, love, to show genuine love, it doesn't come from us. It comes from above. It comes from God working in us through the gospel. And so the real question that we need to ask at the end of this passage is, do you know the love of God? Have you experienced the love of Christ? Because if you have, go and do likewise. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Well, how can we ever thank you enough uh, for your love for us? Because we know, Lord, that Judgment Day is coming and that's the day where we should be judged for all of our sin. And yet in your great love, you sent your only son to come into this world and to take that judgment on us, on him, our judgment on himself. And that because of that, we can be set free and brought into your family to have you as our father, to have a faithful older brother, to have the spirit of adoption, the spirit of love dwelling in us. And we now have this joy of being part of something bigger than ourselves. We're part of the body of Christ. We have brothers and sisters in Christ. And we thank you, Father, for, for the, the, the wonderful love that we experience as Christians, love that, that's eternal, love that is showered upon us by you, and then love that we experience from fellow Christians. And all of this is, is it's nothing that we deserve, and yet you chose to do it by your grace. So, Father, we pray that we would meditate on that more deeply, that we would be transformed by your love, that we would then be people who show genuine love. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.